You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Umbilical cord blood contains millions of fetal stem cells, both somatic and hematopoietic lines. Yet with most births, this potentially life-saving resource is discarded along with the placenta. Now there is an alternative, cord blood banking for future use in the treatment of a variety of diseases. Today we are discussing umbilical cord blood transplantation. In this segment, we will be focusing on the history and science of this technology. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. With me today is Mr. Maury Kraus, founder and chief technology officer of Via Cell Corporation. Some of our obstetrical colleagues may know this as Viacord. Welcome, Mr. Kraus. We are pleased to have you on the show. Happy to be here. How are fetal stem cells biologically different than embryonic stem cells and adult stem cells? There is a big difference between what we call cord blood stem cells. We don't actually say fetal stem cells because the stem cells that come in the cord blood or collected from the cord blood are after the birth, so they're actually neonatal stem cells. I was actually uh, wondering about just what to say because I knew that, but, you know, one minute they're fetal stem cells and next minute they're newborn stem cells. Yeah, and that erases the ethical and political controversy around harvesting cord blood stem cells. Stem cells are actually generated, the hematopoietic stem cells, those that form the blood and immune system, are generated in the fetal liver. And then prior to gestation and for about 48 hours after gestation, the stem cells are mobilized. That means they're brought into the bloodstream of the fetus. And then after the birth of the neonate, they begin to home into the bone of the neonate. And it's for that very reason that we're able to harvest cord blood stem cells after the birth because they're in the circulatory system of, of the neonate. But getting back to the question of what the differences are, as you may know, embryonic stem cells are what we call totipotent stem cells, which means that they have the total potential to become any cell and tissue in the body. They're quite naive, though, in fact, so naive that they don't know what they want to be yet. So if you take embryonic stem cells that you've cultured in a plate and you place them in animal models of disease, there are several problems that you'll encounter. First, they'll form tissues of the wrong type in the wrong place. Second, they'll form teratomas. And third, we should realize that every embryonic stem cell really only matches the donor, so it's very likely that they'd be rejected in most cases. So whereas embryonic stem cells are totipotent, they're not very useful today in the clinic, although most people believe they will be in the future. On the other end of the spectrum, we have adult stem cells. Adult stem cells are what we call unipotent or multipotent. They only have the ability to turn into the particular type of tissue. For instance, hematopoietic stem cells are generally thought to only be able to make hematopoietic cells or blood and immune-forming cells. So you can't use those cells, for instance, to regenerate the liver or the heart or other organs. Adult stem cells also have the issue that as we age, our stem cell pools get smaller and smaller, and it's harder and harder to get stem cells from adults to use them in uh, transplants. And also, the immune system of the adult continues to mature, so when you use adult stem cells, there's quite a a lot of issues with graft-versus-host disease. This is where the graft actually fights the host and tries to reject the host. So on those two ends of the spectrum, you have the embryonic totipotent cell, and on the adult side, you have the multipotent or unipotent stem cell. Neonatal stem cells or cord blood stem cells in the blood have cells what we call pluripotent stem cells, which means that they're not totipotent. They can't make a full individual, but they can 
in fact, turn into different tissue if they're exposed to, for instance, the liver or the heart or the muscle. They pick up the signals from those cells because they're naive enough, they're educated, but as if they haven't gone to college yet, they're naive enough to take on the characteristic of those cells. And the other great thing about cord blood stem cells, aside from this pluripotential, is that they are naive enough in their immune system that they can be readily accepted into less well-matched individuals. And the final point I would make on that is that cord blood stem cells are non-controversial because they can be harvested post-birth, so there's no issue with either ethical or political concerns. So in summary, the neonatal stem cells are a little bit more malleable in terms of what tissues they can generate, and they're less immunologically of a challenge for any host that receives them. Is that correct? Exactly. If you have just joined us, you are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, and my guest today is Mr. Maury Krauss, who is the founder and chief technology officer of Cell Corporation. Today we are discussing umbilical cord blood transplantation. In this segment, we have been focusing on the history and the science of this technology. When was the first cord blood used for a transplant? The first transplant using cord blood was performed in 1988 by Elian Gluckman, a French transplanter with a specialty in Fanconi anemia disease. And the first transplant recipient was a young boy who received his sister's umbilical cord blood for the disease of Fanconi anemia. He was after the transplant and in to this day, which is some 20 years later, cured of Fanconi anemia. And this is one of the beautiful things about a stem cell transplant for these genetic diseases is you're actually replacing the blood and immune forming system stem cells of the patient with donor cells. So a way to understand this best is to realize that after the transplant, in taking a sample of this little boy's blood, you would have found that the cells were double X chromosomal, that from a, a little girl versus his XY chromosomal somatic system. And today, he remains double X chromosomal for those systems, and this is what we call a chimer. He has chimerism for his donor, uh, in this case, his baby sister. I see. And he has no ill effects? No ill effects whatsoever. How does graft versus host reaction occur if you're getting your own stem cells? I know to many of our listeners, that might seem a, f- a bit far-fetched. If you're getting your own tissue, how can you get? How can you reject your own tissue? Well, in the case we just talked about, this was a sibling transplant, which I should inform your listeners that 80% of the transplants or more that come out of the family banking system are for siblings versus for the child themselves. So you're absolutely right in questioning uh, why you'd have graft-versus-host disease in an autologous transplant where the, the donor receives or uh, the recipient receives their own cells. There is no graft-versus-host disease in that case. But in these cases with sibling transplants, Assuming the match is good enough, in most cases, this is what we call a six out of six HLA match, which for siblings, in addition to being matched at those phenotype levels, is also what we call haploidentical. So they have inherited from the parents the same immune system, essentially. In those cases, the degree of graft-versus-host disease is very, very low. What is the immune mechanism of graft-versus-host? Yeah, well, we wish we knew more about it, but the assumed mechanism is that by installing Uh, T-cells into the recipient from the donor, those T-cells, which generally would serve as a surveillance system for our own blood immune-forming system to protect us against any invaders, 
is now an adopted immune system by the recipient. And in that case, that immune system is hunting around for invaders and sees the body as an invader, that the uh, recipient's body is an invader and begins to attack it. And there can be uh, problems with skin, gut, and organ abnormalities and uh, aggravation that can, be, can lead to a considerable amount of morbidity and mortality. I see. So even some of these cord blood transplant recipients would still need to be on a transplantation immune type uh, suppression drugs. Generally, immunosuppressants are used and steroids are used to reduce the effect of graft-versus-host disease, but it should be noted that graft-versus-host disease is far less severe and frequent in cord blood transplants versus bone marrow transplants. When you take graft from a child, an adolescent, or an adult, as that graft becomes older with that donor, the immune system becomes more complex and that leads to more graft-versus-host disease. I see. So less frequent and, when it occurs, less severe. Now, with the first transplant taking place in 1988, I'd like to talk about the birth of your company, Viacel. How did your company come to be formed? Well, we started in the area of ex vivo expansion. This is the process of taking stem cells, in this case cord blood stem cells, and expanding them to make more. As you may well understand by the fact that every infant is a different size, and every cord blood has a different volume, you cannot predict a priori how much cord blood you'll get out of a unit. In most cases, a a cord blood collection is sufficient to treat an adolescent, and in many cases enough to treat an adult, but not in all cases. So we started with a mission of expanding cord blood stem cells so that you could use a single cord blood to treat any adult, and we continue to work in that area as we have a very strong emphasis at Biocell on uh, research and development, making cord blood more valuable in the future. We quickly realized that there was an interest in families, birthing families, in preserving the umbilical cord blood of their children for future use, and we started a service business in 1994 to do that. I see. Were you the first? Uh, We were pioneers. We were one of several companies that started at the time. So did this start as a Ph.D. thesis, or did it really start as a biotechnology venture capital startup? How did your company come into existence? It started up a little bit of both. I was working on a different thesis, but wrote a proposal for expanding rare stem cells. And at the presentation was introduced to some venture capitalists who uh, asked me if I would want to start a company. And so we did start the company with venture capital. I want to thank Mr. Maury Krauss, who has been our guest. We have been discussing umbilical cord blood transplantation. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions about this program, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.